And within a year, I went from 220,000 a year to a million a year and 90% passive in my business. So I was working so, so many less hours and making a lot more money. Welcome to the Raw and Real podcast. Are you dreaming of changing your life through opening a business? Or are you curious what obstacles entrepreneurs had to overcome on their journey? Then you're in the right place. My name is Agnes Billig and I'm your host. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It would really mean a lot to me if you would join my Facebook group, Raw and Real Talks, that I can get to know you better and interact more with you on a personal level. So I hope to see you there. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Raw and Real. Today's guest on the show is Lisa Johnson. She's known as a passive income queen as she helps people build reoccurring revenue streams from their passion and their interest. We talk about how she went from high school dropout to six-figure business coach while doing this mainly passive, what you need in order to start a passive revenue stream, what it takes to build an audience and start selling to them, and the most common mistakes that people make. So I hope you enjoy this one. Can you first tell us a little bit about your personal experiences when you were growing up and how your career started? Yeah. Oh, that's a big old story. So I grew up in um, in, a, in a council house in Lincolnshire. Um, so, you know, we didn't have very much money, but I was really happy. And then my parents split up when I was 11 and I got sent to a private boarding school um, because I got a scholarship and, you know, not many people in our town got a scholarship. So it was a really exciting thing. and I was really happy about going. But when I got there, I realized it wasn't going to be as fun as I'd expected it to be because I hadn't known up until that point that we were what you would call poor. You don't when you were a kid. You just you just have your life and it doesn't matter if you are best friends with the rich kid down the road. For you sure. No, sure. you don't even think about it. And then, um, yeah, I got right from day one, I got made fun of for being poor. And I started to be bullied because I was a bit of an outcast compared to everybody else. And, you know, everybody else had these really great lives where they were going on amazing holidays. They were being picked up in their Jaguars and their Bentleys. And, and I didn't have any of that. And I was being brought up at the time by a single father. And so it was it was tough times for me growing up then. And then I eventually moved schools when I was 14, just said, look, I can't handle it anymore. Can I just go to a normal school? And so I went to like the normal grammar school um, down the road. But by then I was seen as different because I was the girl that had been to the posh school. And so I was still bullied for being different to everybody else. And also this was a mixed school. I'd been in an all girls school. So I was not used to being around men at all. I'd grown up in quite a, a restricted religion. I'd grown up as a Mormon. And so, you know, I wasn't used to being around boys and didn't know how to act around them. And so I must have just come across as really awkward. And, um, you know, my accent had changed because I'd been around people who had had elocution lessons and those kind of things. And so I no longer sounded like all of the rest of the people around me in this mixed school. And so I was bullied there, but it got worse there. Um, because it was a mixed school, because we were a bit older. And at the age of 16, I decided not to go to school anymore because on the way home from school one day, one of the girls had told me in the morning that she was get a girl from like the year above that she was going to get me. And I was used to hearing those kind of things and, you know, would try and like avoid people and, and dodge people. And I had this one friend at school that happened to be off sick that day. 
until I was alone. And on the way back, I tried to get to the school bus as quickly as possible. But she got me and she held a knife to my throat. And it was a really defining moment for me because it wasn't necessarily her. You know, like I almost expected something like that to happen. But there was a crowd of around, I don't even remember how many, 15, 20 of my classmates egging her on. And that experience massively stayed with me because it was almost like worse that they were there wanting this to happen. And I don't know how I got away. I have no idea. I can't even remember. But I I got away from that situation and I pretty much didn't go back. And from somebody that was pretty smart, you know, I had got a scholarship to a school. I left school with, you know, really bad GCSEs, not not great at all, because I just didn't go. (laughs) I just didn't want to be there. Um, So that was the end of my education. I didn't bother going to college. I didn't go to university. I didn't do any of those kind of things. And so it was later in life when I was like 30 that I decided I was going to change things and I was going to go and get a law degree. And I got my law degree while I worked full time. And from the age of 20 till 30, what kind of job did you have then? All sorts, everything you can imagine. So I started off as an office junior in, uh, you know, just like in a local office. It was, I, I remember being paid 35 pounds a week. That's how, you know, it's like one of those apprentice type things. And, you know, just try to work my way up. But I got married really young. I got married at, I think I just turned 18 years old. And so I then had no job, was just like a wife for a few years, like three years. That turned into a situation where there was quite a lot of bullying in that relationship. I think I'd become a victim by this time. I think I was attracting it somehow. And so I left that. And then in my first job, I, I went and got this job, you know, office junior. There was other women there. So I was like really scared of big groups of women by this point. I say women, they were very early 20s, um, as I was. And in the, there was like a factory that adjoined this office. And I remember this boy liking me. Now I'd had nothing to do with boys, like up until this point. I was married. I didn't really enjoy the boy I was married to. And then this boy kind of shown an interest in me. And I obviously wanted nothing to do with it. But it was a boy that one of the other popular girls in the office liked. And so from then on, I was a target. And when I look back now, I must have been attracting it because I went from every relationship I was in, every sort of place I was in, I got bullied. And it's because I was terrified. And so I just must have come across as so aloof and awkward and not wanting to talk to anyone. But that was just fear. Um, And so in the end, I was in that job for about nine months and my boss called me into the office and said, I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to let you go for your own safety, like nothing to do with your work, but we can't sack the entire female workforce and they don't want you here. So we're going to have to sack you. Now, I know a lot about the law now. You can imagine how much money I could have made if that happened now. I can sue. Um, But then I didn't know anything. And so... I left that job and just thought, God, you know, is this it? This is what it's going to be like. And had to make a really hard choice at, I think I was like 26. Yeah, I was, I was going from job to job. I was doing nothing. And I was really unhappy. Um, I'd come out of my marriage by then and was on my own again in so much debt and just thought, is this it? Is this what it's going to be like forever? Because if it is going to be like this, I'm not sure I'm up for it. 
you know, yeah. I'm not sure I really want to do it. And uh, I had to make a choice of whether to carry on or not and decided that the only way that I was going to is if I could prove to everybody that they were wrong, that I wasn't stupid, poor, never going to make any money, never going to make anything of myself, never going to have a, a decent relationship. All the words and all the phrases that all of these people since the age of 11 had been telling me, I, I said, if I can do one thing that no one expects that I can do, then I'll carry on. And then I had to think of what would that thing be and decided to do a law degree because a degree seemed like a really hard thing for me at that point. And uh, at this point, there was like one situation after the next chasing you where you were in this victim mentality. And uh, I think that was like a really defining moment probably for you where you were able to switch that around and change that. So how did you do that? I don't know. I always think there's been... I come from a, a long line of very strong women. And I think it was always in me just being dampened by everybody else. And so when my head was clear and it came to, you know, not fighting anymore, I was bored of fighting everybody and I was fed up a bit and I just I don't want to fight anymore. So I think it just became clear that I had to make a choice. And when I look back now, I can totally see how that choice could have gone the other way, how I would have been a victim forever, how I would have, you know, been scared to do anything but I had to just prove one thing to myself and I didn't know how that was going to go I mean a large part of me thought maybe I will try and do a degree and I won't be able to do it and then they would have been all proved right and that's fine you know at least then they would I would know yeah. but I didn't yeah. know what was real anymore and what was true because I'd heard so many things about myself from so many different people and so wanted to give it a shot and so glad I did so then you started studying your law yeah. degree. So I what studied happened then? for a law degree. I was working full time as a PA. I managed to get a job as a PA. And every single night I'd go to my bedroom with my books and study. And then every year I would go for a week to the university and take the exams. So because I was having to do it in the evening, I had to you know take the exams every year. And then... After four years, I got my degree. I got one of the highest marks in the, the university for that year. And so to me, that had proven that I could do it. And that I had the stamina to stick to anything because I pretty much didn't do anything else for those four years apart from study. Um, it was like just to see if I could do it. And it, I didn't actually want to be a lawyer. This is a ridiculous thing. I just wanted to get a degree that I thought would be a difficult degree to get. And then slowly you really started in entrepreneurship and started your own company, right? Yeah, I mean, not for a while, you know, I was, my first, um, my first jobs after this was I, I, I really started climbing corporate ladders. I went into investment banking and I climbed the corporate ladder of investment banking. I became a business analyst. I was earning really good money. Like people were telling me how lucky I was because nobody from where I came from had, had got to this level before. And people would say, wow, you've got this amazing life in London, you work in Canary Wharf. And I felt lucky for a time and then realized that actually I was working every hour and had no life. <laughs> but, yeah. I, you know, I was supposed to be lucky. This was supposed to be a good thing, you know. This is luck. Um, and then I had twins. So I fell pregnant with twins. It, it wasn't a an intentional choice, but I fell pregnant and um, I, you know, kids weren't on my agenda for my life. And um, 
It was twins, of course, <laughs> sod's law. And um, so, yeah, things had to change for me then. And, and, you know, I'd already rewritten my story, I guess, a few times by this point. And this was the time when I really had to rewrite my story again. But this time I knew I could do it because I'd already done it before. I'd, I'd come over some hurdles before. So I was like, okay. I went back to work when those boys were five months old and I never saw them. I was leaving the house at six o'clock in the morning. I was coming back sometimes at 10 p.m. at night and I just never saw them. And I thought, this isn't, this isn't the way. Like, I know I'm lucky to be here, but this isn't what I want for me. And, and it needs to be. I always think it needs to be about what you want your life to look like. Not what everybody else says is a great life, but you. And I didn't feel like it was a great life. So I decided to change things. I resigned from my job. I got a PA job again, like 10 years before, near my house so that I could see my kids. It was an easy nine to five job where I didn't really have to think very much. And um, thought, well, this is what I'm going to have to do to be able to see my kids every day. But then while I was doing it, I got really bored. Um, I was so used to like having difficult things on my plate and juggling things. And I was just like playing on the internet, looking at clothes most of the time. <laughs> so I was like, right, well, let's do let's do something different you've always wanted a business and I was like 38 at the time wow, um, 37 38 yeah. so cool you know it's not really the time to start a business when you've got five month old twins but I was like like let's try it what have you always wanted to do and I've always always wanted to be a wedding planner I always thought you know I could be really good at this it looks glamorous it looks like there's parties and cake and it's gonna be fun and so I started this wedding planning business knowing absolutely nothing about business and um it failed miserably the first year as so many businesses do you know I'd done right I got quite a lot of weddings I got like 13 full planning weddings but when we worked out like the costs and the the profit and loss at the end of the year I'd earned something like one pound 15 an hour because it takes so long to plan a wedding um and yeah, well, I was doing things so wrongly. I didn't know about business. I didn't know about marketing plans. I didn't know about ideal clients and that you really need to attract your right client to you. I was just doing anything for anybody and undercutting everybody, which isn't the way to go. And so I was £30,000 in debt at this point because I'd left this great job for this PA job. And kids are really expensive. <laughs> so... I was like, okay, I'm either going to need to stop this business and realize I'm just going to be a PA and that's fine for the rest of my life, or I'm going to have to make this work. And that means hiring help, hiring a business coach to actually teach me about business so I can see where I'm going wrong. And I was 30 grand in debt already. Like what's 35, 37 grand in debt? There's no difference. So I decided to put the money on a credit card and I got a business coach. And she taught me all the basics that I should have known before I started. And so decided because of what I'd learned to really rebrand everything and start only talking to my ideal client, which was like a really cool Shoreditch bride that wanted a warehouse wedding, like an anti-wedding, really dark, uh, nothing pastel, you know, something that was much more me. And so we rebranded to that. And it was scary because it meant we weren't getting all of the other weddings. But five months later, our ideal client walked through the door. And um, we, you know, we didn't have to 
barter on price. They knew that they wanted to work with us because of everything that we'd changed and everything we'd been putting out there had a really big budget for their wedding. And it was amazing. Three months later, we were fully booked for a year and a half and we put our prices up three times and it made no difference. People were still coming to us. So it completely changed the game in that business. And how did you get the word out? How did you get in touch with all of the clients suddenly? We were marketing with an actual marketing plan rather than just spraying and praying and like trying a few things. We knew who we were now. So we knew where our clients would be hanging out. We knew they were on Instagram, not Facebook. You know, these were the kind of clients that were visual. We knew what magazines they would be reading and what they wouldn't. And we knew how we could do our Facebook ads better because we weren't just doing them to every single bride, you know, everybody that was engaged. So it just changed the game. And we forged relationships with all of the really big bloggers who had our ideal client under them. So instead of trying to, you know, get seen by every single bride individually, we went to where they were looking and we did influencer marketing. And that, it just really worked for us. And, and once a few people started coming to us, they'd recommend us to their friends. And in reality, 95% of people who are getting married, they didn't want someone like us. They wanted, you know, the usual, you know, pastel, really nice, pretty weddings. And that isn't who we are or who we were. And so um, we only got about 5%, but we only needed that. We were fully booked with that because there were so many people out there that were getting married. And so it kind of changed everything. And what was really the moment that you started being interested in passive income? Oh, not for a long time. So first I got interested in coaching because people started coming to me and saying, how have you done this so quickly? Like you've been in this wedding industry for like a year and a half and now suddenly you're fully booked. And I've been in this industry for 10 years and I'm not fully booked. And so I started sort of teaching them in really easy to use language rather than the jargon that I'd had to go through on how you could do things and what they needed to tweak and what they needed to change. And it started working. And they started making a lot of money. And so that kept happening. And then other people from other industries, not even in the wedding industry, started asking me for help. And I realized that maybe I have a gift to be able to teach people things that seem complicated, like sales funnels and, and advertising and make it easier. And so I started three years ago as a business coach. I gave away the wedding business. I had tried to sell it. Couldn't find the right person. The people that were coming to me that wanted to buy it, they just wanted the money. And it was my baby. You know, like I'd, I'd made this from scratch and I really wanted it to go to somebody that would not ordinarily be able to have a business that was five years old with an amazing portfolio, great SEO, and, you know, already had relationships with the, in the industry. And so instead, we decided not to sell it and to give it away to the right wow. person. So we did a competition and somebody won the business. And they now have the business and they're doing great. And so I became a, a, a coach. And this time I knew who my ideal client was. I knew how to market properly. I'd learned all the business basics. And so, you know, within the first six months, I'd made six figures. Within the first year, I'd made 220,000. And it was working brilliantly. But there was still a problem. I was still working all the hours. So I was still, you know, I'd given up my nine to five for a six o'clock in the morning to an 11 o'clock at night like a lot of us do. And I was exhausted. And I wasn't seeing my kids who are now a bit older. 
Um, there were five at the time and I still wasn't really seeing them because people were trying to give me their money and saying, I really want to work with you as a coach. But I was like, I have no more time in the day. I don't know when I'd fit you in. Um, and so I realized that this wasn't going to be exactly what I thought it was. And then one day, 18 months ago, I was listening to a podcast and there was somebody talking about this myth that was passive income and they were arguing. Is this a myth? You know, is it real? And anything like that I'm interested in. So I'm like, oh, what myth? What's going on? And started listening and thought, if this is not a myth, this is a really good way that I need to take my business. And so then I decided to learn everything about passive income streams. You know, I went on every course you can imagine on passive income. I spent over 200,000 on coaches, on courses. I just went for it because by then I was earning, you know, really decent money. And so I was able to invest back in and I learned everything that there was and realized that I could start adding passive income streams into my business. So I started adding in memberships, courses, a jewelry range, ebooks, all of these different parts, and then seeing which ones were making me the most amount of money with the least amount of work. And by far, courses, memberships, group programs, and workshops were were doing that for me. And within a year, I went from 220,000 a year to a million a year, and 90% passive in my business. So I was working so, so many less hours and making a lot more money. And that's when everybody started asking me how I'd done it. And so I started teaching passive income and, you know, the things that you really need for passive income, like building an audience and the, the myths that are around passive income, because there are so many things that people don't understand about passive income and that are untrue about passive income. So I started trying to, to teach people how it really is. So let's say if someone wants to start something tomorrow when it comes to passive income, where, where should they best start? Now, first of all, think about what you are an expert in, what you are passionate about. So, for instance, people often say to me, yeah, but I, you know, in my, in my career, that I can't do passive income. There isn't anything I could teach. So I always say the first thing to do is have a look at what you do in your business. Is there a way that you could teach someone to do it? So, for instance, if you're a branding designer and you do people's websites, you do their branding and you do their websites. And people can't afford you because your one-to-one price is really high. Can you do a course where you teach them how to do it themselves for a lower price so that it's easier and you can do it, you know, you're leveraging your time because you can get more people on um, at the same time. And if that's not right for you, can you teach other people how to be what you are, a branding designer, um, and do that as their career? So they're like the two ways in business you could do it. That doesn't work. Have a look at what you used to do in your job or are still in your job. So, you know, if you did customer service for like a massive firm like Virgin, that means you're going to be able to teach entrepreneurs how to make sure their customer experience is spot on. You know, if you dealt with retention in a big business, you can help people with retention with clients and memberships. There's so many ways to transfer it across. So the second thing to do is look at that. What jobs have you had? What makes you, you know, really experienced? The third way is to look at your pastimes, your hobbies, what you know just from life. So for instance, I could probably quite easily set up a course on how to potty train twins because I've been through it. I know how to do it. I know the mistakes and I know what works. Some of my clients have all sorts of different memberships, things like theatre memberships for people that like the theatre. 
my one of my clients made 600,000 last year from that theatre membership. You know, they, they can do really well. I have one that does Caribbean co- cooking, one that is a dating, you know, uh, mentor and does dating uh, memberships. There's so many different things you can do. But it's about thinking about what you know and what your life experience is, what you're passionate about. And the biggest problem that people have with this is they go, yeah, but I'm not an expert. An expert is the person that knows the most about a particular subject in an average room. So we're all an expert in something because... You know, I know about passive income more than most in an average room. You probably know a lot more about podcasting than anybody else in an average room. So you're an expert. So, you know, there's always something that we can we can do with this. So first, think about what you're going to be an expert in. And then what I realized was when I was teaching other people how to make passive income, I was doing the same thing over and over again. It, it was almost like a formula. I hate the word formula, but I was doing the same thing. And so I started teaching them how I was doing it. And I trademarked a system, which I call the cash system. And that basically stands for the C is client. The C in cash is client. Work out who your ideal client for your passive income product is. Now, you might not know exactly, oh, I want to have a membership. I want to do workshops. I want to do a course. You might not know. But what you can know is who you want to help. Who do you want to serve? Work out who that person is. So for me, I wanted to help people that were me a year and a half ago and that were really busy and doing really well one-to-one, but they had no idea how they could scale this. They'd hit an income ceiling. So that was my ideal client. So the first thing you do is know who that is. The A in the cash system is audience. Once you know who those people are, you need to grow an audience of them. And you need to nurture that audience, whether you grow them in a Facebook group or on an email list or on Instagram or wherever you decide. You grow them using a sales funnel, usually quickest way by far. And then you nurture that audience by giving value, by helping them um, so that they know, A, that they like you as a person. People buy from people that they like, but also that they know you have the expertise, you know what you're talking about. And then the first S. In the cash system, it's got two S's. I wish it didn't because it would be much better, but it has two S's. The first S is systems and structures. So what systems are you going to use to put your course out there on membership? And there are so many these days. We can no longer blame tech and say, oh, I can't do it because they don't like the tech. Because they've made the tech easier and easier. And we've got things like Teachable and Kartra and Thinkific and things that are really easy. Member Vault, Kajabi. To, to use. So work out what you want to use and how you're going to deliver. For me, I love video. So I generally deliver my courses on video. Some people just like writing. They're going to do workbooks. You know, it depends on what you want. Checklists, whatever. So that's the systems and structures part of it. The second S is the selling. This is the most important part. This means launching. How are you going to launch? Launching is as much of a strategy as your entire business. It should be mapped out every single time that you launch. And you should know exactly what you're doing. It takes four to six weeks, the lowest amount of time to actually launch properly. So launching is a big thing. And I teach that. And then the H is happy. You need to keep your clients happy so that over and over again, they buy from you because it's much, much easier and cheaper to sell to an existing customer than it is to keep trying to find new customers all the time. But also, if your clients are happy, they will rave about you and you will grow a really loyal audience. And if you have a loyal audience, that's like paid advertising without paying for it. They will tell everybody 
about how you help them earn money. And so it's keeping them happy. And so that's the system that we use. So let's say someone is creating a course about a certain skill set that they already have and they want to like share it um, and solve a problem for someone, obviously. How would they go about growing their own audience and then starting to sell with them? So what do you think are the key steps there? I think the first step is to think about a lead magnet, something that your ideal client really wants and that will actually help them. It needs to be a value. It can't just be some, you know, there's so much trash out there now, but it needs to be something that is is really valuable to them so that they opt in. Giving their, you their email address is no easy thing these days. You know, we're all a bit over the, over the noise that comes into our email boxes. There's a lot out there. So we need to make sure it's worth them giving our email address. Do you, have some, do you, have, do you have some examples of good lead magnets? Yeah, so I have two that work really well. One of mine is a quiz. I think quizzes are doing so well right now. So I have a quiz on are you ready to make passive income? And it gives a personalized response on what they still need to work on. I think things like that can work really well. Um, and I have another one, which is six months of Facebook live prompts. So it's something that can actually help people. And yeah, we spent a long time thinking of 182 Facebook live prompts that people could have. But if you're going to say that you're going to give something, you have to deliver it. There's so many people that have something out there that says, you know, click on this and you'll get my free da-da-da. And then it isn't there. It's, you know, it's a watered down version. Give something really worthwhile. So, you know, think of what the pain point is of your ideal client and solve it for them or go some way to solving it at least. And that's going to draw them in. And then you can email them, you know, you can set up a nurture sequence over a number of days so that they get to know you and they get to know what you're about. You know, be vulnerable, tell them what you're about, let them inside. Don't be like only talking business. They need to know you. Be really transparent. You know, my business values are like honesty, transparency and integrity. And I believe that the more transparent you are, the more you show people that how they can do it the more people will want to work with you. I don't believe you can give too much. I know lots of people say, you know, hold it all back because then people won't want to work with you. And I've never found that to be true. I give my best stuff. You know, I've just told you guys exactly how to make passive income. That doesn't mean that some of you won't go, oh, I need to do that step by step in a course of some kind. So give your best stuff. And then, you know, make sure that you are consistently there for your audience. Once it starts growing, what you can't do is be there for a bit disappear for a bit, get bored because it's taken more than three months for somebody to buy from you. These things take time and patience. There's this, I feel like we've got to this point in business now where 10 years ago, our parents who had businesses would say, oh, if we make it, you know, if we break even in year three, we're doing well. We feel like we've done okay. If we don't make six figures in three months, we're all annoyed. Like something has happened where we expect things on a plate very quickly. And it shouldn't be like that. You know, you're building with passive income, you're building an asset up front to be able to make money from it over and over again later. But you put the hard work in up front and that's the growing the audience part. That's the bit that takes the most time. And, and what's the best way to start selling in your opinion? I think launching. Like rather than just kind of going, you know, I, I do have lots of people who are clients that say, oh, you know, I did this brilliant course and it didn't work. You know, nobody bought it. And I said, how did you launch it? Well, I went into my group and I said, hey, I have this course. Who wants it? 
Like, that's not good enough anymore. We have to talk more than that because there's a lot of noise out there. We have to do a structured launch process where, you know, you may be doing a challenge or a boot camp or webinars or an interview series or a summit or something so that there are more eyes on you and people can see what you have to offer. So I think that's the best way of selling. Um, I still think you can sell one-to-one in a more personal kind of personal outreach approach. I think that can still work really well for high ticket. But I think for things like courses and memberships, it's better to, to sell en masse and to not be scared of selling. There's a lot of people that are like afraid of selling because they see it as sleazy in some way. And what if someone doesn't advertise the course a lot and kind of just puts it on a platform and tells people about it? What's the problem with that? I, I don't massively love Evergreen, <laughs> which is what you're, you're describing, where you just have something sitting there and you hope that people buy it. I just don't think that works anymore. There's too much noise out there. Um, I much prefer the open, close cart route because if there's some urgency people are more likely to buy if there's a deadline than if you can. I mean, I've seen Evergreen work, but I think it's few and far between. I mean, you can sell on a tripwire, perhaps on your uh, email sequence. That's one way of making money continuously. But I, I prefer the proper launching approach to Evergreen. I think it's Evergreen is a great dream. And it can work, but it takes like years to test which webinars are working, you know, the email sequence, what bonuses are going to work. And you have to, the way to make Evergreen work is to tweak each tiny bit of it at a time and leave it running for a while. And it takes a lot in Facebook ads. I made a million a year with no advertising, no Facebook ads at all. I do use ads now, started using ads this year and it is scaling it hugely, but you don't have to use ads at the beginning. When you record a course, so you should have it done, in your opinion, and then no, advertise no, it no, no. for <laughs> weeks and then weeks launch it? No, no, no. Don't ever write the course before you've sold it. And I know that's terrifying to people. And it's like, what? But if you, I've seen people write these amazing courses, like shiny videos, and they're great. And it's taken them six months. And then they put it out there and nobody wants it because they didn't ask their audience what they wanted. And because everything moves so fast, you know, you want to be giving your audience what they want right now. Remember that the knowledge is all in your head. Whatever you're going to put in a course is in your head anyway. You already know it. So you can sell it based on a sales page of what those modules are going to be before you write a word of it. And then once you've made the money from it, there is no better <laughs> trigger for you to write it because you've already made the money for it. So just make sure the first time you do it, you give yourself time. Like every two weeks, you're going to drip feed the modules and you're going to do it live to give them something more. And if you do it that way, it means you've got two weeks to write the modules in between. Um, and then the next time, it's all written. So it's going to be a lot easier and then you can either give them it all at once or you can do it every week or every day or however you want to do it. But the first time, do it on a kind of beta live way so that you can write it as you go along. But I'm a big believer in not writing a word of it. Like if you want to do the first module to make yourself feel calmer, great. But don't write an entire course before you know if it's going to sell. In your experience, what are the biggest mistakes that people make when they create one of their passive income streams? I think the biggest mistake is that people try and sell something before they have an audience. 
So they think, oh, I've got this great product. I'm going to put it out there. But they don't think who's going to buy it, you know. And, and I think that that's not necessarily their fault. I think there's a lot of people selling how to sell your course kind of things out there without even mentioning audiences. And without the audience, you don't have anyone to sell to. So take the time to sell, you know, to grow an audience, to nurture an audience of people and to give free value. Um, because then you have something, someone to sell to over and over again. So that's the biggest mistake. The second is in launching. Like so many people don't launch properly. They don't give it enough time. They don't warm up their audience. They just go straight in with a, with a sell. Like here is this thing you can have. And also people don't often ask their audience what they want. They have something that they've decided they want to sell. They haven't asked their audience if they want it. Whereas, you know, when coronavirus started, I went straight to my audience and said, what do you need? What will help you right now? Overwhelmingly, we need to find a way to take our businesses online. Go create that for them. Sell them what they need and then you will make money. Um, and, you know, during coronavirus, we tripled our normal revenue because we gave our audience what we wanted, what they wanted. Do you have some tips on how to find your right audience and drive traffic to your website, for example, if you have a lead magnet there in case you don't have any budget for running ads? Yes, I don't think that you need a website. First of all, I didn't have a website for the first year. I think as long as you have somewhere where you can put your audience and help your audience in one place, drive them to that. So for me, that's Facebook groups. Facebook groups have always been like my favorite thing. And so if I have a freebie out there and I will put that everywhere, like in my email signature, on my Instagram, I, if I'm doing a talk, I will talk about my freebie at the end. You know, all of those things means that people will find you organically. And people will also, if you're doing, if you're showing up and you're doing really good stuff in your group, people are going to tell other people about it and people will find you organically there as well. So for me, it's about the sales funnel, like having a lead magnet and a nurture sequence that leads people into finding you and your world, wherever that is. So in a Facebook group, and don't forget your list, like we're borrowing Facebook. We should never have everything in one place because if Facebook just decides to shut down, well, we've seen that happen a few times. For sure. Everybody like goes crazy, sure. you know, like have something that you own, you own the email addresses. Yeah. on a list so so do both at the same time um and then you can nurture from that so that's the best way i've found i have found that you know pr goes a long way i, I had a forbes article go out last year that really helped it was a, a two-pager on me and it got two hundred and fifty thousand views in a week and that drew a lot of people into my audience um doing things like podcasts like this can really help new people to get to know you articles blogs things where you're putting out really good content to draw people to you but it needs to be the right people you don't want everybody you want your right client the right people for you according to your experience what passive income stream works the best for you for me there are two membership so i have a membership of just over 500 people i cap it at 500 um, and that works really well for me because it's an ongoing stream. What kind of membership is it for what? So mine's a membership for female entrepreneurs who want to, you know, they're just starting in business or they've been in business a couple of years, but they're not doing as well as they want to. 
So it's a place, what I found when I started in business is I was really lonely. I felt like none of my real friends really got what was happening. And so I started this membership called the Get Shit Done Society. And um, for female entrepreneurs to just basically have a community. But what we realized is as well as the community, we could learn some stuff. So I pulled their money to hire people that they wouldn't normally be able to, to teach them what they needed to know, whether it was Instagram, LinkedIn. And we've had some amazing people in that membership, Denise Duffield-Thomas, Alex Beden, you know, some really great people. And so that's been going three years now, like right since I started. And some people who are in that membership have been in there right from the beginning. Um, And we decided to cap it very early at 500 people because I wanted to know everyone that was in there. And I'd been in memberships with 6,000 people and I'd felt just as lonely. as before, because no one really knew who I was. And so by capping it, it means that if people leave, we can just open the wait list and get new people in. So it's a really nice passive or semi-passive income stream for me. I go in for half an hour on a Friday. I do wind down Friday. I have a glass of wine with all the members. We have a chat and I tell them about what I've learned in my business that week. And then we have other people come in and teach them things. So it's not me all the time. So it's, you know, a really good semi-passive income stream. It makes me around 300,000 a year. So that's one of my favorites. And my others are courses. I have a, a main, I have lots of courses, but I have a main signature course teaching people all of the jigsaw pieces of how to make passive income, right from growing your audience to attention, including launching and writing the actual course or membership. And I started that because when I spent all this money trying to learn how to make passive income, every time I bought a course, it would concentrate on one part of the puzzle. So let's say launching. And so I'd do, I'd learn about launching, but then I'd be like, who am I launching to? And then I'd have to go and buy another course about how to grow an audience or grow the audience. And then it was like, well, how do I write the course? And so I'd have to do another course. And, and I just thought there needs to be something that goes all the way through from the beginning to the end. So it's a long old course. It's like, you know, a group program almost because I do it live and it's over six months. But um, it works. And we have you know, 300 people in it at a time, three to 400 people at a time. So it's great. Awesome. Do you still have a last key takeaway, a personal insight that helped you grow you would like to share? Sorry, say that again. Sorry, your voice went on that. Didn't you? Just, no problem. Do you still have a last key takeaway, a personal insight that helped you grow that you would still like to share? A personal insight. I think my biggest thing, the thing that helped me grow the most was to realize that other people's opinions, especially strangers on the internet, will not pay my bills or give me the first class lifestyle that I need. Once I realized that and stopped worrying about what people thought of me, I did things a lot quicker. And how can people get in touch with you? Easiest way is to come into my Facebook group, which is called The Fabulous 5%. And if you want to work out whether you're ready for passive income, if you go onto my website, lisajohnsoncoaching.co.uk, and you go to freebies, there's um, a quiz on there that you can take. Awesome. Thank you so much for making the time today. And for everyone who's watching or listening, please make sure to take a quote or personal insight that you had from today and share it on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and make sure to tag us. I love to see what you really learned from today. Thank you so much for listening. If you don't want to miss out on future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. 
and check out the show notes for a deeper dive on what you heard today. 